Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. My name is Sam Parada. I'm here with Dan Rudman, as always, and we have a special guest today, Mac Tomlinson. Uh, we briefly mentioned that we were going to have a guest on a future podcast, and if you've been listening, we've been doing a series on revival, kind of started the series talking about the Asbury revival, but then used that as a little bit of a launching uh, point to just get into a, a biblical and historical discussion on revival. So we looked at some biblical examples, some Old Testament examples, and then we spent a few episodes really looking at the history of revival and church history, paying kind of special attention to the the first and second great awakenings. Uh, but we want to kind of move away from the first and second great awakenings and get into more of these 20th century uh, revivals that, that took place, especially in the Isle of Lewis. And we're going to really ask Mac about those revivals. He's met some people that experienced them and has some really cool insight on that. But a little bit about Mac. Mac, you you currently serve as a pastor of Providence Chapel Church in Denton, Texas, and I think you are one of five pastors. Is that right? Right. Yeah, I'm one of five pastoring elders here at Providence Chapel in Denton. Awesome. And you also do an itinerant evangelistic traveling, preaching, teaching ministry as well. And why don't you just tell us a little bit about kind of your ministry and how you you are both a local church pastor, elder, and also an itinerant preacher. What does that look like for you? Yeah, over the last almost 25 years, I've I've done that periodically, not never full-time, always out of the context of pastoring a church, but I've always had a plurality of elders with me, other men I labor with equally in ministry. So mm-hmm. that has enabled me to travel monthly somewhere, usually once a month, and um, teach or preach. And so if I were a, a senior pastor with only, it was only me, I couldn't do that. So uh, right, yeah, that's right. been a fruitful um, quarter of a century century of um, of traveling and trying to build up the body of Christ with the truth of the word and and the message of of revival. Absolutely. So, Mac, you also, in your past, edited a journal, uh, a journal on revival and spiritual awakening called Heart Cry. And why don't you just tell us a little bit about that experience editing that journal and, and what you, re- you really learned about revival and awakening doing that? Yeah, well, you know, my interest was peaked very much. Uh, in the 1980s and in 90s, just on the subject, and I just kind of did my own deep dive as a pastor, mm. reading the right authors, reading the right history, and kind of chronicling it, studying it more deeply, um, and then writing a little bit on it. And so in 1990, let me think, 95? No, it would have been perhaps 93 or 94, um, I began to edit that journal, which first was titled Revival, the Need of the Times. Mm. Um, And then a couple of years later, Life Action Ministries out of Michigan uh, invited me to bring that magazine on as a journal with with the Life Action. And then they named Mm. it Hook Cry Journal. And so... They made it better. I remained the editor. And it was dealing with revival at a at a different level, perhaps theologically, doctrinally, 
as well as historically and devotionally. So I did that for a number of years um, until Life Action felt like their their readership, their constituents, I think, had been saturated enough. And so they, they stopped the journal. And it, it was time for that to stop. Um, so, yeah, so that's how that journal began. And um, so it was a very personally rewarding experience to, to do that deep dive, to learn the figures in church history I didn't know about and specifically how God would use men and how revival would start suddenly somewhere without warning mm -hmm. at times by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So I was just thankful to have that opportunity for those years to do that. And and I think it it was a blessing to the body of Christ, those who were able to to get that journal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then just one additional thing, you also are an associate, have worked with Ambassadors for Christ International. Um, just tell us briefly a little bit about the history of you with Ambassadors for Christ and how you were introduced to AFCI. Yeah, well, when, I, when Al Whittinghill and I were in Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth in the mid-1970s, uh, Leonard Ravenhill, the British evangelist, introduced Al and I to one another, mm. and that, that created a friendship that lasts to this day. Al and I stayed connected, and then when Al moved to from Chattanooga, Tennessee to, to Atlanta, and joined AFC, you know, we were still good friends. And so then I became associated with AFC uh, through Al initially and have loved uh, the connection with Ambassadors for Christ ever since and still have that. So that's how that happened. Awesome. Well, let's, let's transition into talking about these 20th century revivals, even the Welsh revival, the revivals that took place on the, the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. And Dan, I'm going to kind of give it, put it over to you a little bit to kind of talk about those a little bit and maybe start to lead a dialogue with, with, with Mac on that. Sure. Well, I would love it. I just want to really let Mac carry on because people have heard yeah. from me on this, but you, you've kind of hit the, the, what we're thinking. There's these 20th century movements now after the second great awakening and there seems yep. to be these legitimate times of God's manifest presence. And, you know, going back, if people were to listen to the, the past podcasts, um, we've been just trying to build a, a little bit of a, a grid, a lens by which how we can view these things. And we, again, you already mentioned biblically. And then when we saw the awakenings, um, we're thinking about doctrine. We're thinking about the type of preaching that was going on. We're thinking about repentance and prayer. And these 20th century, particularly in that part of the world, you know, the UK, you know, um, Scotland, Wales, all those areas, were pretty remarkable times that seemed to be really good case studies. I say case studies, they were huge. They were very significant. They had an influence on the world, yeah. really. And so I think, Mac, you know, you and I stumbled a couple of times, Sam, when we did the podcast, because we wanted to talk about it. And we kind of know we've read and we've studied this stuff. But we both claimed we weren't deep church historians in all the all the details, and so right, right. I, I think Mac is that 
in my mind, in some ways, and he already alluded it to it a little bit, you know, a number of steps beyond us. He's lapped us numerous times on being a little more authoritative. And so I think it'd be great yeah. 20th century. And so Mac, you know, you just tell us a little bit about, you know, those revivals and awakenings and some key features that you, you saw, or, or I mean, or, um, know about, and I know you've interviewed some people or you knew some people, I think, wasn't there a physician and his wife, uh, although the Isle Lewis, maybe, I don't remember that, but I'll let you carry on. And I know that, uh, you know, Ian Murray's written a lot about this and I think you've been over there and interacted with a lot of that material too. So, so I just hand it to Mac, feel free, Mac, just to share with us some of the insights you have. Yeah, well, I'm certainly not considered a church historian, so let's let's clear that up right at the beginning. <laughs> okay, but be, uh, you're, you're definitely beyond us. Okay, good enough. <laughs> I've just been a student of revival and yeah, you know, pastoring and preaching, but yeah, um, you know, Wales is. I think Richard Owen Roberts called Wales the land of revivals or maybe J. Edwin Orr, the great revival historian, J. Edwin Orr. Yeah. J. Edwin Orr, his books probably are very, very affordable on Amazon. And J. Edwin Orr is, is really the historian of revival, uh, almost in a class by his own. So anyone that wants to read on the history of revival, the actual accounts of the revivals, J. Edwin Orr is the guy to read, Andy and Murray as well. Um, but yeah, R Wales seems to have a unique history, even among the British Isles in having, I think, you know, Richard Owen Roberts thought one time that Wales has had, had had 20 major awakenings over the centuries in some capacity would be called an awakening, um, because there were powerful revivals even maybe more pure revivals in the 19th century in Wales, 18th century, of course, and the 19th century, and even the 20th century revival that's well known. Um, so I would just kind of start giving a little bit of a context, and you guys can interrupt me anytime. By the middle of the 19th century, Wales had really become liberal. The hmm. The Calvinistic Methodist Church, which became the Presbyterian Church of Wales, was pretty much fully liberal by then in Wales. And evangelical churches were dying. Um, and it was just spiritual darkness, really, by the time uh, between the 1850s up to 1900 at the beginning of the 20th century. Liberalism had really just wrecked the landscape of the spiritual life of Wales. And so there was a spiritual vacuum and <clears throat> just spiritual death, really. Nothing going on. And um, But there were still believers across Wales that were crying out to God to revive his work. Unknown people, um, mothers and wives of godly men and and godly farmers and and uh, young people were praying. I don't think it's possible to could document that prayer path because it was unknown and un, unrecorded. But, uh, you know, as Matthew Henry famously said, when God purposed to, 
purposes to do a new work. He sets his people praying. And that mm. certainly seems what happened to be happening in Wales. Um, but Wales, the Welsh revival of 1904 and 05, there had been some movings of the spirit in Europe uh, a couple of years prior to 1904. And the exact locations fail me, but there, there were periodic outpourings of the Holy Spirit uh, in places in Europe that were significant movements, but they didn't last um, with the duration that the 1904-05 revival did. But it, it kind of set the stage because there was reports and there was newspaper reports and letters written and the word was spreading that God had been moving in places. And so in Wales, um, what emerged was this young man uh, in his early 20s named Evan Roberts. And he had been a miner working in the Welsh mines, uneducated, uh, unknown, mm. and um, that had answered God's call to ministry, whatever that meant. I don't think he knew what that meant. Evan Roberts was not a theologically educated or theologically minded young man. He wasn't um, completely sound in his doctrine. He would have held the orthodox points of the faith, obviously the deity of Christ and the, the cross, the atonement, the bodily resurrection, the inspiration of the Bible, but he was not a theological preacher at all. He wasn't he wasn't geared that way at all. So there were weaknesses, but um, it just seemed like clearly and obviously now that he began to pray uh, in a deep way and the Spirit of God was poured out upon him mightily at one point in 1903 and beginning of 1904 and he had this passion to preach Christ. And he was somewhat of a mystic, but maybe on the good side initially. And mm -hmm. he he tried to follow the, the leading of the Holy Spirit as far as where he was to go. And so he just began to, to speak in meetings, in prayer meetings, in small gatherings. And then finally, a team of young people kind of gathered around him. Uh, kind of assistance. Uh, one of the guys would have been called an exhorter, I think. And then young ladies who were godly, who were singers. And Albus almost became a, an evangelistic or revival team. And mm -hmm. the more Roberts became well-known and there would be stirrings and meetings, the more invitations he had. And the more he proceeded week after week, the more things began to happen, some of which were probably only emotionalism. Um, and but but a lot of which were was a genuine moving of the Holy Spirit in meetings where scores of people would either be converted or deeply, deeply broken by the Spirit of God just through the simple instruction of the gospel. It wasn't even prepared sermons. It was 
It was Roberts taking a text or an exhortation and just in the moment speaking forth the word of the Lord, speaking forth exhortations about the gospel and the Holy Spirit would attend that and people would come under conviction powerfully. And, and then Roberts would often stop preaching and would just let God work. And so okay. he was a very unusual character, uh, strange, I think, some quirkiness, some idiosyncrasies that would have turned people off. But this became a powerful movement, like a, almost like a wildfire, a prairie fire that began to spread over parts of Wales, the central part of Wales, and, and then word spread, kind of like uh, you know, there was no social media, but word right. spread widely, newspaper reports. And so people began to come from everywhere who were interested in the work of God. And ultimately, thousands across Wales were being affected, places where, Rich, uh, where uh, uh, Roberts never even went. Uh, and some have said that that the 1904 Welsh revival was not a, rev a revival marked by preaching, but that's really not accurate. There were there were evangelical pastors that began to preach in the in the glow of the revival, in mm. the encouragement of the new moving of God, and pastors began to preach to, with the same effect in their congregations. Um, now it wasn't, it wasn't distinct reformed preaching, uh, in the tradition of reformed theology, but it was, it was true, passionate preaching to the heart evangelistically or pastorally, uh, to believers to repent and return to their first love. So, you know, over those two years, 1904 and 05, um, you know, J. Edwin Orr says that probably 100,000 people were added to the church membership of the church in Wales across the nation. Wow. 100,000 people would be quite a percentage uh, mm -hmm. of the country. Um, and so I think there were social effects that resulted for, for decades after that. Um, right. You know, Evan Roberts... I think the record shows that he kind of got burned out and exhausted. He had some health breakdowns and he was almost like a, a, a shooting star in one sense. His, his real public ministry probably didn't last more than a year. I may be off a little bit on that, but certainly not more than two years. And um, physical, and other problems that he had caused him to kind of withdraw from society. And I think he kind of lived in privacy. Um, I don't even remember how old he was when he died, but um, so his ministry was very unique in that one of the most powerful movements in Wales and all of Wales history was through this young man who was led by the Holy Spirit to different towns and villages and churches would invite him in and he would exhort or give a brief message 
and the spirit of God would work in power and then he would leave. I don't know how, I don't think he stayed often in, in a place for very long. Sure. It seems to be, it was just a real sovereign work of the spirit and a lot, thousands of prayer meetings would have sprung up as a result of that movement of the spirit. Hmm. That's great. Dan, do you have any thoughts? Uh, no, I, well, you said, if you, um, well, let me, can I step back? I don't know when to yeah. do all this, but yeah, I'm taking a few notes and I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking. So yeah, yeah. Mac, just um, maybe we need to get to, you know, keep moving on in the UK and talk about the Isle of Lewis and stuff, but you did say one word, maybe you could stop here. You said um, Wales and you used the word pure revival in contrast probably to impure or maybe not the real deal or muddy water. I'm not sure. But when you say pure revival, what do, what were you thinking when you say that? Well, that's probably a bad choice of words. I don't think there's ever been a pure revival. Okay. In the, in the technical meaning of pure. Yeah. Um, probably would have been better to say, um, uh, in the in the right sense of the word, you know, when you go back to the first great awakening or the second great awakening with Jonathan Edwards and and George Whitfield and even the Wesleys, and then um, Asa Held Nettleton yeah, in yeah. the early part of the nineteenth century, those men were doctrinally very doctrinally sound, really doctrinally sound in pure biblical theology in mm -hmm. the accuracy of what the gospel meant. Um, they could define their terms biblically. They were very sound yeah. scriptures. Yeah. And so the preaching in those earlier revivals would have been better theologically, uh, but it was with the power of the Holy Spirit. In the Welsh revival, you didn't have that theological accuracy. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, Good. yeah. I don't know if if uh, if Evan Roberts would have even theologically known there would not be a distinction between regeneration and justification, right? Sure. Or what the difference between justification and sanctification meant. Those those young people that were the instruments of revival in Wales at the beginning of the twentieth century. They weren't theologically mature. And mm. so the Welsh revival was not um, a revival driven by doctrinal preaching. It was more experiential. And thus, there was a lot of extremes, I think, that happened. Visions that people would follow. Trances they would fall into. Some of which were probably bogus and emotionalism only hmm. so that's kind of what i meant dan by yeah. that yeah that's good that's helpful because that's that's yeah, yeah. what we that's what we've been trying to uh uh get at mac we've been talking about this and we've tried to be very careful not diminishing that god can do stuff beyond our little boxes and at the same time it did seem like to your very point there was a piety a wonderful piety at the same time a wonderful uh, rational thinking that came together, doctrine, doctrine with the scripture, right? Doctrine with yeah. uh, 
you know, and, and, and so one of the metaphors we used, and I picked this up, Mac, probably, uh, you know, in fact, it's interesting as I'm listening to you. And I, I wondered sometimes if you even knew before I was even associated with AFCI at literally in maybe 1993 or four, I actually talked to you on the phone. I actually had discovered the revival need of the times and I tracked you down and we had talked. It's very interesting. Uh, because I was starting, well, I was, and I think I've said it in these podcasts, I was starting on the same journey. I started collecting books and reading and studying. I was so intrigued by all of this. And so all that I simply meant to say is somewhere in this journey, and maybe you know, Mac, because you're pretty good at these names. I read somebody, maybe it was Owen Roberts as well, Richard Owen Roberts, something about stacking up the firewood. It's a metaphor that's always in my mind. You know, we, we stack up the firewood and we preach doctrine and we, we try to be as, as accurate as we can. And we long for God to do something beyond us. And uh, I think that's a great metaphor. And so um, when you say pure, yeah, I, I, you know, authentically, doctrinally right. I think that's great. So moving on from there, though, Mac, if you hold on. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I do have I do have a follow-up comment on that that I think that, that's important. I think the reform community today thinks revival is going to be pure and spotless theologically. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and it's very, very wrong thinking. It's very inadequate thinking. If you look at the first great awakening up to the Hebrides revival that we're going to talk about shortly, you never had a perfectly clean revival ever. There were always, there was always emotionalism. There was always mistakes made. There was immaturity. There was people getting in the flesh with their pride. There were people weeping and the ministers couldn't get them to stop crying. Um, so I have this firm view. The Reformed people who love Jonathan Edwards and applaud him, they would have been offended or disagreeing with what was going on in New England when Edwards mm. preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. People were mm. screeching and screaming under conviction. Yep. And, and so it kind of frustrates me that that reform people address revival and they dismiss everything that doesn't fit through their theological grid. Yeah. It means they've never been in a movement of the Holy Spirit where God hmm. comes and deals with people deeply. Um, I don't know what they think revival will really be like, but um, we should not expect a squeaky clean, perfect one where nobody's crying or crying out or or getting yeah. emotional sure so i think that's worth saying yeah that is that's a great that's good great that's great because yeah we've been trying to figure out how to strike something in the middle of all of that mac in our conversation so i love that i love that it's like even for sam and i to make sure that we're we're you know being humble about all that because if god shows up who who are we to think that we know how god's gonna... <laughs> we can't put them in a box for sure right but um, with, oh. that with that said then, Mac, um, can you move on then a little bit now as we're moving into the 20th century, uh, Hebrides, Lewis, Duncan Campbell, some of that sort of stuff? Yeah. 
Um, well, of course, I have friends that knew Duncan Campbell and heard him preach. Yeah, what, 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 what years, just kind of frame it for the listeners, what years are we talking about now? Yeah, Duncan Campbell, I don't remember what year he was born. Probably in the teens or maybe the 1920s. He died in 1972. Right. And um, so he, he, he spoke some in America in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, long after the Hebrides revival, 20, 25 years afterward. And so I, I have some, some close friends who knew him. He preached for them. Um, and normally in America, he would be asked to tell the story of the Hebrides revival. So he wouldn't preach uh, the Bible as much as tell the story. Oh, okay. And he was happy to do that. Um, and so, uh, in fact, he he preached in the home in Iowa of a friend of mine. And went, that week, this would have been in the 1960s. And that week he told them, these friends in Iowa, I have this great burden and assurance that I've received from the Lord that revival is going to come to Canada. And he just kind of announced it, shared it mm -hmm. in passing. And sure enough, I think two years later, uh, the Canadian revival started in, in, um, in Western Canada and Bill McLeod's church, Ebenezer Baptist church in Saskatoon, Canada. The Spirit of God was poured out mightily for weeks, and they had to move the, the meetings to five different buildings, and ultimately 2,000 people, I think, were attending every night, and that Canadian revival swept Western Canada, affected all parts of Canada and the northern states, but Duncan Campbell prophesied two years earlier that it was going to happen. So this was a man who was in touch with God. Um, you know, he was, I'm pretty sure he was Irish or Irish or Scottish. He must've been Scottish, but so he started out as a minister. He wasn't reformed at all. He was Nazarene, I think, and the, theologically he believed in, I think, um, Perfect sanctification, kind of like Nazarene theology hill, a little yeah. bit, though he may have been balanced in it. He was a he was a holiness preacher, but a man who just walked with God deeply and yeah. his preaching his preaching was piercing and passionate and powerful and persuasive. Uh so he really wasn't a pastor, he was an itinerant evangelist. And with the um, faith mission out of Edinburgh, Scotland. And um, so he just did itinerant work and uh, was a married man who loved his wife, loved his children very much, and a man who walked with God. And so there's not a lot to say about 
his earlier ministry before the revival came to the Hebrides? Was that in the 40s or 50s in the Hebrides? 40s, 19, well, late 40s. It really started in, there were movements of the Holy Spirit in Scotland, apart from Duncan Campbell, in the 1947, 48 years. Yeah. Um, but the, the Hebrides revival connected with Duncan Campbell started in 1949. Right. And then mm -hmm. went into 1950. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. And then so, when you and when you talk about Canada, Saskatoon, I've heard about that. We actually at one of our conferences had Ralph as Sutera uh come and speak to us at one of our AFCI conferences. That was 70s, is that correct? Again, I'm just trying to get a timeline. Yeah. Yeah, that started yeah. in 1970 in Saskatoon. Right. And so there was two twin brothers involved in that preaching teaching, the Sutera brothers, Ralph and Lou, right? Yeah. Right. They were both they were they both came to preach at at uh, Ebenezer Baptist where Bill McLeod was a pastor. Okay. I don't know, 10, 10 to 14 days of meetings. Okay. And uh, you know, Bill McLeod said that it was at a time the church was at its lowest. And but they had started prayer meetings okay. a month prior to the Sutera brothers coming and and a few of them were fervently praying bill mcleod was a man that really walked with god deeply and and a real man of prayer and uh so they had prayer meetings for a month at least before the suteras came and then at first nothing happened that they, they they preached and uh and then suddenly you know a few days into the meeting god just broke in and and all kind of things started happening. Sure. So, Mac, when you say, uh, if you could help us, you know, again, we're touching over a period of time, you know, Welsh Revival to 1970, and kind of talking about this 20th century. Could you off the top of your head, like when you say God broke in, could, you know, when we think of firewood, when we think of, you know, a grid by which to assess some of this, um, what are some of these key aspects? I mean, you've mentioned prayer. You've mentioned some of these things. You've given us a caution of trying to be so tight with our theology that we miss something supernatural in the spirit. When you think of, hey, here's a here's a grid to think about this, the longing for it, the things set up, as well as maybe the things when you say God breaks in, what's going on? Help us to have a picture of that, maybe. Yeah, well, I think believers just need to believe. We need to believe the truth that God can come and bring revival again we need to believe that he he's done it so many times in history and that he can revive his work again to quote habakkuk revive your work in the midst of the years and so does the holy spirit come can the holy spirit come to a church or a conference or a community or a prayer meeting like in Acts chapter 2, like in Acts chapter 4, Acts 4 is a perfect example. It says, while they were gathered together praying, mm -hmm. then something supernatural happened. In that case, the house shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're not talking about something physical. 
we're talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit can suddenly be given in a, in a greater measure of power mm. that he comes and draws near and the presence of God is manifested in a way that wasn't happening prior to that. Right. And, and the spirit of God is powerfully there and people are under conviction and, and God is drawn near. That's what happened in the first great awakening in Northampton with Edwards. That's what happened under Whitfield and, and the Wesleys and in the, in the previous uh, generations, that's what happened in Wales. The Holy spirit is poured out. And that simply means God sends the presence of the Holy spirit in a new measure in a new manifested way. That's and God and God's people experience the presence of God. Now this is, this is abnormal. It's it's not normal. It's not the normative in the church. Mm -hmm. Normative seasons are when we're teaching and preaching and fellowshipping and loving one another and doing discipleship and we're praying. But God is not doing anything supernatural. An outpouring of the Spirit is supernatural in nature. So that's what we're talking about here. Sure. And... Sadly, professing Christians are divided on this. There are some at one end of the spectrum that say that's not going to happen anymore. The Holy Spirit is not poured out experientially anymore. That's just Pentecostalism. That's just charismatic, charismatic chaos. And they are deniers of the reality and moving of the Holy Spirit that's authentic. The other extreme is a Pentecostal fanaticism. It's mm. only experience based. It's not based in truth of scripture. And that too is error. Yeah. But the middle ground is biblical truth that holds to orthodox truth about the gospel and proper theology about God, but also is open to the Holy Spirit coming and being manifested and meeting with God's people. And in mm. Dozens of sinners getting saved at the same time. So when you say, when you say, and uh, let's let's do that, 1970s Saskatoon, difficult time, Bill McLeod, and and Terror Brothers come, and then God, yeah, I think you used the word, I think you said breaks through, or God shows up. What does that sort of like? What's that look like? Let's say it that way. What what would how would you describe that that the day before it wasn't and now it is? What is that you're describing? Well, if I remember, and I I've spent a week with Bill McLeod in in Winnipeg at his home in the in the early two thousand, probably twenty one years ago, interviewing him about this, and and so I remember vividly. You know, he kind of talked about how the movement started and then played out. Yeah. And so when the, when the Holy Spirit first came, suddenly many people in the, in the sanctuary were under conviction. They began to kneel down and cry and pray. And Bill McLeod had enough wisdom just to let it happen. Hmm. The worst thing a pastor or leader could do would be to stop something and try to take over and control it and stop it. Mm 
but it does need to be led. And so Bill McLeod, he let the meeting go on. And then he was a sensitive man. He was a spiritually minded man. And so when he, when he had a sense that he should get up and close the meeting, um, he did and, and people responded. And then, and then he announced, uh, they'll be preaching tomorrow night for those who want to come. So he opened it up for the meetings to continue because he knew God was working. And so even I think that first night people tarried and they were praying together and, and the lights were on in the building into the wee hours of the morning. And so God, people were just meeting with God. Yeah. Nothing orchestrated, nothing. People were just meeting with God. They, they were aware of God's presence and their sin mm -hmm. and they were praying by themselves or they were praying with someone who would pray with them. Yeah. That's what it began to look like. And then every mm -hmm. night for weeks, um, Bill McLeod or someone else would preach a message. And it, it, it had to be messages that they felt like fit the hour. So it probably would have been simple messages on repentance or faith in Christ or brokenness or um, the sinfulness of sin. And yeah. so the meetings would take on the, the flavor of they would have, they would sing some and then they'd be preaching. And then the presence of God was there every night and mm. they just, they just tarried and, and then people began to come to Bill McLeod and, and others saying, you know, I've been a deacon here 10 years and I, I realized tonight I'm not, I'm lost. I'm not even converted. And then they would pray with them and, and urge them to, to just believe the gospel and rest in Christ. And, and mm. so that, that, began where to produce many church members in churches there in Saskatoon uh, who were not even Christians uh, began to be converted. And, hmm. um, and that began to create a real stir in the churches widely. Yeah. And so uh, news of what was happening began to spread. And every night more people came from other churches around and the building was field and every night singing and testimonies they would ask one or two people to give a testimony about what happened to them in those recent days and the testimonies would be lively and moving and fresh and real so the meetings were singing a testimony preaching and then probably altar calls which were not modern types basically bill mcleod would say we're going to go into a time of prayer. Whoever wants to come and kneel and pray can. You can pray where you are. Let's go into a time of prayer. And then that would become hours of people seeking the Lord and meeting the Lord. Mm. And this went on for eight weeks. They ultimately had to move it to uh, other venues. And ultimately, the largest church in Saskatoon were hosting the meetings. But it was the same thing. The Spirit of God had not diminished in moving every night. Mm. And 
uh, ultimately hundreds upon hundreds of people were touched and saved and the churches were quickened with new life. And out of, out of those eight week meetings, laymen would be invited to come to a church in a neighboring town and, and he would come and give his testimony. And the Holy Spirit authentically continued to move. So across Western Canada, there was just, God was saving people through the ripple effects of those eight weeks in Saskatoon. Very good. That's excellent. Yeah, that's awesome. What we should just briefly go back to uh, the Isle of Lewis with Duncan Campbell and just unpack just a little bit more about what was going on there in 1949, if we could. Yeah. Well, um, on the Isle of Lewis, I don't remember the the minister's name. It would have been a, a Scottish Presbyterian man. Presbyterianism in Scotland ruled the day. And often in a bad way, often in a wonderful way. Um, so the Hebrides Islands of Scotland off the coast of the mainland of Scotland for, for centuries, or at least in the 18th, 19th and 20th century was probably the, the premier part of Scotland where, where the gospel and godliness reigned among the people. Uh, everybody was a churchgoer, and even people who were unconverted were God-fearing people. They would read the Ten Commandments in their home every Lord's Day. They would, they were in church. They wouldn't mm -hmm. violate the Sabbath. So the Hebrides Islands were just uh, famous for the godliness and the Christian heritage. And so, but on the Isle of Lewis, there were two sisters. I can't even remember their names now. Peggy and I'm sorry, I, I can't get the others now. They were 80 years old. 80 Christine. Years old. Yeah. And two old women who had health problems. And but they were they were real women of prayer at a deep level. And they had a burden for the island, a burden for the lostness of people, but a burden for the young people especially. And they, they were just praying probably for years together. It was, it was their ministry was private prayer and intercession. And they knew how to pray like a, a godly Scotsman in those days, deep, passionate prayer, biblical praying, praying the scriptures. Mm. And yeah. they were really walking with God. And so as they had a burden for this, they knew of Duncan Campbell's reputation. They knew of him. I don't know how. But by this time, he was he was widely known as a faith mission evangelist who traveled the British Isles. So, so they had their minister come one day, and they encouraged him to invite Duncan Campbell to come and preach. And... <clears throat> So the minister either knew of Duncan Campbell's reputation or he thought he should listen to these older sisters who were his part of his congregation. And so he sent a telegram or a letter to Duncan Campbell. Um, 
and so they were they were all praying and it probably took weeks i don't know how long duncan camel sent back a reply uh, declining in the invitation saying you know i'm booked for two years and i just can't come i don't have an opening and so the minister went back to the sisters and said well reverend campbell replied and he, he can't he, he can't come and i think the story goes that one of the sisters replied that's what duncan campbell says but god says he's coming <laughs> and so okay well okay we'll see <laughs> and so time passed and and then duncan campbell one week was in a conference i think it was in england <clears throat> and he was he was scheduled to be the last speaker of the conference to close conference and I'm trying to make, yeah, I remember this is how Duncan Campbell tells the story that he was sitting up on the platform with the chairman of the conference while they were singing before he was supposed to preach. And God was dealing with Duncan Campbell deeply. Yes. And he turned to the chairman of the conference and said, I have to leave. And he said, what do you mean you have to leave? I have to leave now. I've got to go. I'm sorry. So Duncan Campbell leaves the building because he had this compulsion. Maybe it had been developing over the last two or three days. I don't know. But he had this urgency that he was supposed to go to uh, the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. Hmm. So he leaves. And he travels and finally gets on a ferry boat that goes to the Isle of Lewis. He hadn't contacted anybody. Now this is how Duncan Campbell tells the story. Uh, and I believe him. Um, he gets off the ferry boat and there's a man standing there who says to him, are you Mr. Campbell? And he says, yes, I am. How did you know I was coming? And the man said, how did you know to come? <laughs> and the man told him, you're preaching in the church tonight. So the very day he comes, they already have a meeting set up in the church. I don't know the details, but this is this is genuine. That's what. Yeah. yeah. And so. Um, course remember all the presbyterians on the island went to that presbyterian church sure i think is the case now i could be wrong but the point is presbyterians rule the day in scotland so there weren't southern baptists there methodists or you know right. presbyterians yeah. um and so duncan campbell's preaches and nothing happens really there's no movement uh, apparently it was probably the sermon was okay, but nothing happens whatsoever. But they're inside and they're still visiting. The people had left. And so I guess he and the minister finally walk out 
and as they walk down the hill, they see something has happened. There are people kneeling in the grass on the ground, praying, crying, hmm. crying out to God. And they see other people walking up the road toward the hill, toward the church. People are coming and God had begun to move. The hmm. Holy Spirit had started his moving his presence among them that night. And so the same kind of thing happened all over the island. Duncan Campbell preached daily for weeks. Um, and, uh, and God moved all over those islands for weeks and weeks. And, and many, many, many people were saved. So the nature of that movement in the Hebrides was really the same as it was in Wales with Evan Roberts. It was a sudden, very surprising, powerful movement of the spirit. Same in Canada, really. And that, yeah. that seems to be how revival happens. There's preaching, there's people praying, but suddenly. Yeah. And that word, you know, is used in Acts chapter two. They were gathered in the upper room and suddenly there was a sound from heaven. Yep. In yep. Acts chapter four. Uh, there was a suddenness where the spirit of God came on that, that prayer meeting. Yeah. There was yeah. a suddenness in Canada. There was a suddenness in Wales and there was a suddenness where the Holy spirit manifests himself in, in a moment. It starts. It's, this yeah. is, um, uh, it's experiential. It's, um, it's, it's relational. It's, it's, um, I don't know what other word you'd use for it better than experiential. God comes and mm -hmm. his presence is there and the people experience the presence of God. And right. if they're a Christian that's walking with God, maybe their experience is unbelievable joy and, and humility and they weep about the cross and the love of God. Mm. Uh, true Christians that aren't walking with the Lord, maybe they're, backslidden maybe they're cold in heart they're yeah. just crushed they're crushed over their cold-heartedness and their lukewarmness and the sins mm. they've been committing and they're just broken in repentance maybe unconverted people have different experiences but it's multifaceted what happens when the suddenness of the holy spirit happens yeah so you know man i've heard a uh and this is what i was alluding to earlier i, I somehow it finally you know, the light bulb went on in my head. I remember watching this uh, uh, documentary of, uh, uh, would it be uh, Dr. and Mary Peckham? I think that was the name. And, yeah, Colin yeah, Peckham. Yeah, and so she was maybe like a teen during the uh, during this time in the Hebrides in the Isle of Lewis. Um, yeah, yeah, Linda, my wife and I were in Britain for a month, about 14 years ago. And we went up to Scotland for a week and, and we were with Cole and Mary Peckham in their home for a day. Right. Um, and yeah, and they, um, you know, they, they ended up working with the faith mission in okay. Edinburgh. Right. Uh, yeah. Mary was converted under, in that movement under Duncan Campbell and Cole and Peckham became connected later 
Um, I don't remember the details on that. Yeah. But the Peckhams were just delightful, humble, godly yeah. Scottish Christians that that always had a heart for revival and a ministry with the message of revival. And so it was it was just moving to hear Mary give very vivid um detailed testimony about yeah how the Lord saved her in that in that revival yeah. in Campbell's ministry. Yeah, and that's what I heard. In fact, one of the things that uh, jumps out at me or is remarkable to me is she said years later, you could be in the streets of those communities and you could kind of tell who had been in that time because there was a sense of their presence, a sense of joy, a sense of their life that you could see on their countenance years later and say, oh, they were there and they were there and they were there. I thought that was really remarkable. Yeah. You know, you know. It reminds me of, of a story Duncan Campbell told. The way Duncan Campbell was, described the Hebrides revival, that it was it was an, an island and a people that became saturated with the presence of God, saturated. Yeah. yeah. And Campbell said it was it was like the presence of God was manifested on the whole island and in the villages. People who weren't even in church, who hadn't been going, had this sobering, soberness about them. And they almost sensed the divine presence. They sensed the the fear of God was there. Campbell one day was walking through one of those villages and he came on one of the streets to, I think a group of six or seven men were who were sitting at a table, maybe, maybe having tea, maybe playing dominoes or something. And he stopped and there were some words exchanged, but all of the men in those minutes broke down in tears and began to pray. And so just, I mean, just imagine that. Imagine if you're in your downtown square or you're, out where people gather on a college campus and you walk up to a group of guys and they're unchurched, they're uninterested, they're they're just pagans, they're just heathens, and you start talking to them and suddenly all of them are under conviction and they're crying and they're praying. That's when you know God is present in an unusual way. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's you know, Sam... Sam, you have some other stuff. Could I, uh, I don't want to totally switch gears, but I want to, uh, I know you want to get to the brain, uh, his book on the Brainerds, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're, I, we're at about a, almost an hour. So, yeah. Could I, okay, so I don't want to take a long time for this, but I just wanted to make mention, this is, I, you know, maybe it doesn't even fit in the sequence here. But one thing, Mac, I just love you to touch on, literally, just take a couple minutes Sam and I visited uh, your church last summer, visited you and Linda, and we had just a wonderful time. But one of the things that I actually found remarkable, and in one great sense, you'd say, why should it be remarkable? But it was, Mac, is that your church really does, when we think of this idea of stacking up firewood and longing for God's movement, and really, Drew, in, in one sense, it's the ordinary means of grace. But you guys really do emphasize prayer meetings in your church. 
And you took us to one of your gatherings during the week where you guys do this regularly. I mean, this is a part of your culture in your church. And uh, again, what I guess what I'm getting at is this is not like I think Sam and I would both say, I'll speak for myself. Um, this is not my common experience in, in, in churches as I travel around the country and preach and minister was what I experienced with you, Mac. And so I just wonder if you'd comment a little bit on that, how you guys really emphasize this during the week, and you have numerous of these meetings going on in the whole area. Yeah, well, you know, myself and another man, Philip Neely, we planted our church here in 2000, the year 2000. And, but he and I both had been, had a history of, being in churches that have real prayer meetings weekly. Um, and and this started with me in the 1980s because I, I attended hundreds of Leonard Ravenhill's Friday night prayer meetings mm. in East Texas. And I, and I saw how he led prayer meetings. I saw how he, uh, how they were run, I guess exactly what they did in the prayer meetings to make them real prayer meetings. And, and I just got it, you know, he would, he would, would sing two or three hymns. And then, um, Raven Hill would share the word of God, something related to faith or prayer or seeking God, something devotional mm -hmm. that would fuel our hearts to pray in a few minutes later and so and then we would go to prayer for at least an hour and yeah. the praying was free it was relational yep. it was in order um and mainly because the people in that prayer meeting were serious-minded christians right and so i saw this model of a prayer meeting and i just said this is how prayer meetings ought to happen this is what a true prayer meeting is so uh, I've always led prayer meetings that way ever since the 80s. And, um, you know, I calculated one time, ever since I was a, saved in 1973, I was always in my church's prayer meeting, even if they were poor ones. And so I've, I have this mindset that the, the church prays together. It's in the New Testament. Yeah. There's eight or nine examples, even just in Acts alone, the book of Acts, of the church gathered for prayer. So I calculated last year that I think I've probably attended at least 2,600 church prayer meetings in my Christian life. <laughs> um, and That's amazing. Yeah. So, so when we planted our church, it was non-negotiable. We were going to have a church prayer meeting where we really prayed. It wasn't going to yeah. be a 45 minute Bible study. It wasn't going to be then 15 minutes of nominal, silly little prayer requests. Like, you know, pray for Bertha's, my aunt Bertha's bursitis or uncle John's <laughs> stump toe, please. We weren't going to take <laughs> requests. We're going to take legitimate, serious requests, 
lost relatives, broken marriages, great needs. And prayer requests for five minutes. And then we're going to get down and pray for at least an hour. Yes. That's not legalistic. But and so we cultivated this uh, since since the beginning of our church and and it's it's work because to get Christians to pray publicly around others it's a it's a learning curve believers mm-hmm. new believers especially but timid timid Christians or Christians who've never prayed in public it's very hard for them to start doing it so we had to teach on it uh, in the prayer meeting, you know, week in and week out, yep. month after month, year after year. And so I would like I would encourage the teenagers that I knew were Christians in the meeting. I'd say, OK, if you've never prayed in a prayer meeting, why? Maybe because you're afraid. So, look, you don't have to pray like the Apostle Paul. You don't have to pray like me. Uh, just choose something your favorite preacher, uh, something you're burdened about, uh, your schoolwork. Choose something and just choose to pray. Trust the Lord Hmm. and you pray for 30 seconds. You know, if it's nothing more than, Lord, bless my mom and dad in their work. Help us. Amen. So we cultivated teaching people how to be, feel at ease to pray. Yeah. And what we saw was an amazing development of when Christians would choose to pray one time in a prayer meeting, it it broke them through, it broke the ice. They, you know, they took the step, like getting on a horse for the first time. Oh, I did it. Yeah. I can do it again. And so, um, so week in and week out over these 23 years, that's how our prayer meetings are done. We'd come together and sing a couple of hymns, open it up. Maybe anybody have a testimony about what the Lord's done for you this week or a scripture, give opportunity briefly for testimony. And then we're in the word for five or 10 minutes. Um, And then we go to prayer after people can share brief. And so, so it's cultivated an atmosphere of people learning to pray and leading those prayer meetings are, are, are important because generally one of us will say, okay, um, Robert, why don't you start the praying? And when it's time, I'll close. Yeah. And we say, now when some, when one person stops praying, someone else jump in, let's not have downtime. Let's yep. keep praying. And don't pray long. This isn't time. This is not a time for your private devotions. Consider right. the brethren. Pray about something. Target something. Pray and then give others time to pray. You can come back and pray again later if you want to. Yeah. So we instruct people how to do it, and they know the parameters. They know the boundaries, and so yeah. then they have confidence in how to do it. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So our prayer meeting, our prayer meeting has grown where we then had to have to go to two homes and then we had to go to three homes and now we're in four different homes around wow. the Denton area. Yeah. Where people, 
can go to the one nearest them geographically. Yeah. Yep. And so right now, basically, we have a church. We probably have 260 people who attend every Sunday. And at the four prayer meetings, we probably have anywhere from 25 to 40 people at every prayer meeting every week. Wow. And so. Yeah. Uh, it's remarkable. We, so that really, that's a cumulative, uh, probably a cumulative amount of our church corporately prays five hours together every week. If you include wow. all the prayer meetings. Yep. Yep. And so we have seen literally hundreds upon hundreds of amazing answers to prayer um, over these decades because we pray about important things. We pray about uh, yeah. people who have cancer. We pray about lawsuits that people are facing and then those hmm. lawsuits disappear. We've seen a two-year-old boy in final stage of of cancer. We prayed for him every week in our prayer meetings for a year. And the boy's 15 years old today. He's cancer-free. Wow. And so we've seen uh, amazing answers to prayer simply because, not because we're anything, but right. because we know the Bible tells Christians and tells churches pray together. Yeah. And if you will do it, I will answer. Yeah. But yeah. the sad yeah. thing is, churches neglect this one thing that's central to worship. Yep. And central to church life. Yep. Yep. It says if you it's have good. not, uh, it's because you ask not. Right. So our our conviction was the New Testament sets prescribes and describes by example. And shows the church praying together. Yep. And um, those are there for our for our instruction. Because yeah. God will hear His people if they'll pray. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know what? And again, that's you know I don't want to labor that. You've done beautiful, Mac. I just Sam and I were really struck. I don't know, 35, 40 people in a home, and I mean little kids all the way to older people. I mean everybody was there. Everybody was praying. Everybody was engaged. Even young kids were quiet and respectful. It was really something to see. And re and then what struck me is that you guys have wired that, or however you want to think of that, right into the culture of your church. And yeah. so I just thought, wow, wow. Like, so anyway, I, we could labor that, but I'm sorry, Sam, you, you probably want to transition for a couple minutes on Max. Well, book. Yeah, yeah, we got, look. Can I got, say something else? Do we have time, Sam? Yeah, go for it. You know, the key to this is pastors and elders having a conviction that the church ought to have a real prayer meeting. Yep. I've heard story after story of hungry Christians who want to have a prayer meeting. They ask one of their pastors if they can have one, and and it's not they're not responded to. Right. So when leaders when leader, leaders won't do it, it's not going to happen. Right. That's exactly right. Okay, let's uh let's close then with just you briefly talking about your new book that was published with Reformation Heritage Books on the Brainer brothers, David and John Brainer, and more specifically, I think you you tailored it towards John and you titled the book The Indomitable Brainerds. 
basically like, you know, you can't subdue them, you can't defeat them kind of connotation. So yeah, tell us a little bit about that book project and how that came about and just briefly, that'd be great. Yeah, well, on that trip 14 years ago to Britain, that week I was in Scotland, Linda and I stayed in a, a bed and breakfast study center that the Church of Scotland had a beautiful big house and it had a phenomenal library. So we would peruse the library, walk through and, mm. you know, the romance of being in Edinburgh and here's a library. And so yeah, I, saw yeah. on the shelf, I saw on the shelf, The Life of John Brainerd by Thomas Brainerd. And I said, curiosity rose because I'd read, you know, I was very familiar with David Brainerd. And so right. I took it down. Sure enough, John Brainerd was the younger brother who nobody knows anything mm. about. He's forgotten. And so I think I photocopied all of it because I couldn't have read the whole thing that week, but I, I got into it and I, I, I saw what it was saying that David Brainerd died at 28 after being among the colonial Indians for three years. And he saw, yeah. he saw a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit in his third year among the Indians in New Jersey, his third location. But that year he died. And so everybody thinks, well, that's where the Brainerd mission ended. David Brainerd dies and end of story. But actually, yep. John Brainerd was coming to take over the work that David had for three years. And John remained among the Indians 34 years. And so wow. it's like, well, this is the rest of the story. Nobody knows this. And so... I ended up writing an article back then in the, I don't know what year it would have been. It would have been 10, 12 years ago for the Banner of Truth magazine on the Forgotten Brainer. Sure. And that kind of resurrected uh, the the uh, legacy a little bit. But then in recent years, I just said, you know, this story needs to be told. And yeah. that's the only reason I've ever written anything is because this needs to be told and no one seems to be telling it. I, so I'll, I'll try to do it. So um, five years ago, probably, I just set out, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to write the story of John Brainerd. And uh, I then ordered the, an academic reprint of the life of John Brainerd which wasn't known to the public. And then I went to Yale University for what little research I could get on the Brainerds there. And then I yep. just set out to tell the story. So I, I had to, I spent um, two or three years working on the research part-time. Yep. I would, I would go to the beach and stay two weeks and dive in and just work. And so the book developed and finally uh, culminated in an accurate summary picture of the the Brainerd legacy. And yep. Reformation Heritage was gracious to publish it. And it really does, it really does show that the Brainerds were indomitable. Uh, I mean, David's dying at 28 of tuberculosis and he gave three mm -hmm. years to the Indians as a mm -hmm. lone, lone missionary. And here comes his brother following 
courageous to live among savage Indian tribes in the colonies as a white man. Yeah. I mean, the courage was unbelievable. And what they had to do to endure is almost indescribable. But John stayed 34 years among them. And so Amazing. anyway, enough said on that. They were amazing tandem of brothers that that left a phenomenal legacy of taking the gospel to the lost. That's fantastic. So yeah, the book right now is 50% off at Reformation Heritage, their website. So those who are listening right now, if you want to buy that book, I mean, that's a great deal. <laughs> well, this was, uh, this was fantastic. Thank you so much, Mac, for giving us the time to talk about revival, talk about this new book that you have coming out, or it is out now, if I'm right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this was fantastic. Those, those of you who are listening, thanks again for tuning into the Preach and Persuade podcast. Again, you can, you can visit our website, afci.us, to learn more about what we do as itinerant evangelists in our ministry. I think Mac even has a bio on AFCI's website, so you can learn more about Mac's ministry as well from that website. But thanks again for listening, and have a great day. Bye.